Jesus, James, Peter, and John are on their way back down to level ground to meet the other disciples. But guess what? As they're walking down the mountain, they notice something on the ground. There's a huge crowd that's all around the other disciples. Something's amiss when they get there. Mark reports in chapter 9, verse 14, that as they came back down the mountain to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So something's going on. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran up to meet him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report that a man in the crowd shouted as he came and ran and knelt down before Jesus and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you. I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Lord, have mercy on him, for he is a lunatic and suffers terribly. Without warning, a spirit takes control of him. It seizes him and throws him to the ground. He spontaneously screams, goes into convulsions, foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes stiff. Oftentimes, he falls into the fire, and many times into the water. He has a spirit that won't let him talk, and it mauls him and refuses to leave him. Now, folks, don't glance over that last phrase where it says the spirit mauls him. Don't gloss over that. There are, that, that happens today. I've seen documentaries where there are people who have got something mauling them. Wounds just appear out of nowhere, and they don't know what's causing it. So the father says the spirit won't let him talk, and it mauls him and refuses to leave him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, you unbelieving and twisted generation, how much longer must I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So they brought the boy to Jesus. And Matthew chapter 17, verse 18 reports that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed that very hour. And that's all Matthew has to say about it. But Luke went a little further with it. In chapter 9, verse 42 of Luke, it reports that even while the boy was coming, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Mark goes even further. His report is eight verses long. In Mark chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, it reports that as they brought the boy to him, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell on the ground and kept rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said to him, from childhood, the spirit has often thrown him into the fire and into water trying to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then with tears, tears just flowing, the child's father immediately cried out, said, I do believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that won't let him talk or hear, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and shook the child violently and then came out. I always think that's interesting, folks. I've seen this happen in several places throughout the scripture that when the demon knows that there's nothing it can do, it throws one last little fit before then finally being obedient. Just like a little kid that's told to go to his room, they stomp down the hall. They don't just go quietly. They stomp down the hall, say a few things. It's the same thing. 
I've seen this happen several places in other examples like this throughout the scripture, and I've seen it happen in real life. And we're going to talk more about this here in a minute because it's relevant to some very serious issues that you and I have to face every day. Jesus is going to symbolically compare this demon to a mountain and then tell us how to remove mountains from out of our path. So just remember this. Jesus himself, you can't get any higher than him. He tells this demon-possessed boy to get out of him and never come back. And the demon obeys, but not without throwing a little fit first. Says the demon screamed and shook the child violently and then came out. The boy was like a corpse, and many said that he was dead. But Jesus took his hand and helped him up, and he stood up. Then according to Matthew chapter 17, verse 19, and Mark chapter 9, verse 28, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? And then the following verse in Matthew reports that Jesus answered, It's because of your lack of faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Okay, let's stop there and spend some time really trying to understand what Jesus just said. Because folks, this is a passage that a lot of us have some serious trouble with because it makes things sound so easy. If you just have a little faith, you can move mountains. Well, a lot of us would think that at a minimum, we do have a little faith, and yet mountains are constantly in our path, and uh, they don't get moved. And there's several reasons for that. How many of you feel that you have the very least, at least the faith of a mustard seed? A lot of us would probably say, yeah, faith isn't great, but It's at least the size of a mustard seed. Well, all right, let me ask you this. How many of you feel that nothing's impossible for you? Cue the crickets. But didn't Jesus just tell us that if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And then to really drive the point home, Jesus said, nothing will be impossible for you. That's what he said. But I guarantee you, none of us have ever felt like nothing is impossible for us. And what really troubles us is the next verse, which seems to be a contradiction. Jesus said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, now, wait a minute. You just said all we needed was faith like a grain of mustard seed, but now you're telling us that we need prayer and fasting. The kind of faith that I wind up with after some serious prayer and fasting is going to be a lot bigger than the grain of a mustard seed. So if that's the kind of faith that I need that comes after prayer and fasting, then it isn't the grain of a mustard seed. I mean, that's what most of us go through when we read this. So which kind of faith do we need? Do we need prayer and fasting kind of faith or mustard seed faith? Which is it? The mustard seed phrase is where we're having our problem. Because a mustard seed is small, we assume that we don't have to have very much faith. And we combine that with doubt. What we think that means is that we don't have to believe all that much. But that's not what it's saying. It's talking about the size of faith, not its nature. See, a little bit of silver and a lot of silver is still silver, right? So for reasons that we're going to get into here in a minute, the prayer and fasting phrase does not contradict the faith of a mustard seed phrase. As a matter of fact, it's what creates and validates the faith of a mustard seed. 
Now, folks, don't let that word fasting run you off. A lot of confusion about what fasting really is and what it means, and it's not what you think. So let's look at all the words of this passage carefully and define each term if we can. When we read this, what catches our attention first is the amount of faith that's required. It's encouraging. It's not much, just like a grain of mustard seed, which is teeny tiny. But when we read that, we think that somehow the size of faith is equivalent to the quality of faith. If your faith is small, for example, it means you don't believe much. But that's not entirely accurate. A little bit of silver and a lot of silver is only different in its quantity, correct? But that doesn't change the nature of what we're talking about. Silver is silver, whether you're talking about a little bit or tons of it. And unfortunately, we somehow make the mistake when we start thinking about faith, as in small faith means you can have doubt mixed in with it, but doubt mixed in with faith isn't faith. Now, I got to be honest with you, folks, I've made that same mistake countless times. As a matter of fact, not just not too long ago. But uh, when we read this, unfortunately, we think, well, if I ask God to remove a mountain in my life, somewhere inside of me, I really don't believe he'll do it. But I'm not certain that he won't. I hope he'll do it. So by asking him to remove the mountain, I'm showing him that at least I have the faith of a mustard seed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be asking him to remove it, would I? See, that's how we look at this. But the disciples had the same kind of faith. They commanded the demon to be driven out, which means they probably did it in Jesus' name because they know it's not their power, it's God's power. But they didn't get anywhere. So obviously, the act of asking God to do something doesn't show the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here. When we hear Jesus talk about having the faith of a mustard seed, we think the size of faith has something to do with the nature of faith. But the size doesn't change the nature. So what is the nature of faith? When Jesus speaks of faith, what is he talking about? Well, we could probably come up with all kinds of answers to that question, but what does the Bible say that faith is? The answer is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There where it uses the word hope, folks, don't confuse that with the way we use that word today. The word hope in that context means you're looking forward to it. You can't look forward to something that you don't believe is going to happen. For example, the Bible tells us that we hope for the resurrection. Does that mean that we don't know if we're going to be resurrected or not? Of course not. We know. The Amplified brings out the original Greek and says, Faith is the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality, despite what the senses tell us. Just listen to those words describing faith. Assurance. Conviction. What's another way of saying assurance? What's the root word in all of that? It means you're sure. You're sure of something. You're not somewhat sure. You're not guessing. You're certain. You're sure. You know. What's another way of saying conviction? Convinced. You're convinced. You're not doubting. You're not somewhat leaning towards one way of thinking. You are convinced. It's settled. You're sure. You're certain. You're convinced. You know. That's what faith is. Now, whether you have a whole lot of faith or just a little bit of faith, 
That's what faith is. It's assurance. It's conviction. You know, you are sure. There's no such thing as pretty sure. I'm from Texas and we use that a lot. I'm pretty sure, but that's an oxymoron. You're either sure or you're not. So the size of your faith doesn't change the nature of your faith itself. When we read Jesus say that if you have just the faith of a mustard seed, he's not saying that if you have 10% faith and 90% doubt, because that's not enough. It doesn't work that way. Faith is certainty. Faith is assuredness. So what Jesus is saying here is that if you are certain that God's going to move that mountain, if you are sure he's going to move that mountain, if you're convinced he's going to move that mountain, then it doesn't matter. It makes no difference how big or how little your faith is. It doesn't matter whether you're somebody like Moses, who has two trillion gigabytes of faith, or if you're someone who just got saved, who maybe has a couple of megabytes. Faith is faith. You don't have to be Moses or Elijah to move mountains. It doesn't matter who you are. Because after all, who's the one moving the mountain? It's not you. It's God, right? So then what does Jesus mean by bringing up the mustard seed to begin with? Well, he's already brought it up once in one of his parables. The point is, it starts small. A seed is small. It starts small, but it grows. The nature of faith never changes, but the size of it will. It will grow. But the good news is you don't have to wait for it to grow. Because Jesus is saying the size doesn't matter. Even when it's just in the seed phase. With it, mountains can be moved. Nothing is impossible. That's what Jesus said. Now let's define what he means by mountain. And let me just get this out of the way first. Jesus is not telling us that with a little faith we can run around like the Jedi, waving our hands around and literally moving mountains to be picked up and moved from one place to another. He's not saying that. He's using a mountain as a symbolic variable to represent something that is huge and intimidating and immovable. That's in our path. And there's all kinds of mountains, folks. Some mountains are purely demonic, like the one the disciples faced. But other mountains are purely circumstantial. Some mountains are emotional. Some mountains are financial. A lot of us have to deal with financial mountains. Other mountains are physical. There's all kinds of mountains. All of us have mountains that we would like to be removed because no matter what we've done, no matter how hard we've tried, it seems that it's just too high for us to climb over, it's too big to go around, and it's too thick to tunnel through. We're stuck, and we know we have to get to the other side of that mountain, but it's in the way. It can't be moved. We can't get over it, we can't get through it, and we can't get around it. So that's what Jesus means when he uses the word mountain as a symbol. And he's saying that you don't have to be Moses or Elijah to move mountains. If you are certain that God doesn't want that mountain in front of you to be there, and if you're sure he wants to move that mountain, then you can say to that mountain, whatever it is, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. That's Jesus' promise. But how does one know for certain that God does want to move a particular mountain? That's why Jesus added the one condition. He said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. See, you can believe that God is capable of moving a mountain in your path, but how do you know he wants to move it? Some mountains God chooses to leave in front of us for our protection. Maybe God doesn't want us on the other side. 
Other mountains God chooses to leave in front of us because we're the one who put the mountain there in the first place. So we have to go through a painful lesson. People abuse this verse about moving mountains and try to sell the idea that if you believe hard enough, because Jesus said all you needed was the faith of a mustard seed. So if you just believe hard enough, you can make anything happen and get anything you want, whenever you want, wherever you want it. They say, if you believe, all things are possible. But that doesn't say anything about his will, though, does it? Is it possible for you to control God with your faith? Just try. Can you use your faith to make God do something that's against his will? No. All things are possible for those who believe, all things according to his will. That's why Jesus ends his promise with the condition of prayer and fasting. Knowing his will, being in agreement with his will, that requires a daily, rich, consistent prayer life. Without that, you're never going to know God's will. You might think you know it. You might have a good idea. You might hope you know it. But you'll never be 100% certain. And being 100% certain is what biblical faith is. That's the kind of faith that moves mountains. Even the faith of a mustard seed is 100% certainty. See, God convincing us what he's capable of doing, that's not something that usually takes God very long to teach us. After a couple of breathtaking life lessons that God puts in front of us, God shows us that there is no such thing as impossible. And those of us who grow in faith, we eventually see that for our, I mean, it's just, it's always overwhelming and it just blows you away. And that's the first thing God teaches a young believer is just who their new adopted father really is and what he's capable of. Nothing's impossible for those who believe. But then after we learn that lesson, then we begin to make assumptions about what's coming in our life. I mean, after all, since all things are possible, then whatever we want to happen, whatever we envision to happen, is going to be what happens, right? Wrong. We're the sheep. He's the shepherd. We're the adopted sons and daughters. He's our loving father. We're not his father. We don't tell God what he's going to do. We don't grow him up to fit our plans. God grows us up. His love for us is unconditional, and it's never leaving us, and it's immeasurable. But that perfect love is accompanied by perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, and perfect righteousness. God's not going to move a mountain in your life so you can be unrighteous. Let's say, for example, that you fall in love with somebody... And then later, you find out that they're married to somebody else. It's not your fault that you found yourself in that situation, but the mountain you need removed is the emotional bondage that came with that shocking discovery, and perhaps protection from something like that happening again. The mountain you need removed is not the spouse of the person you fell in love with. God's not going to move that mountain. I don't care how hard you pray, how tightly you close your eyes to move that mountain, God is not going to move it. Because you can't make God do something that contradicts his righteousness, and you certainly can't make him do something that gives you what you think you want when he knows what you really want. See, that's our problem, is we think we know what we want. But there are other mountains that we are absolutely certain that they need to be removed, mountains such as sin that's in our lives that we really want dealt with. We want it gone. Or perhaps a mountain like the disciples were facing. In their case, the mountain was a vicious demon that to them could not be driven out. For some of us, the mountain might be a loved one with a painful sickness or a disorder. Or maybe the mountain is an addiction of some kind that's ruining our lives, but we just can't kick it.
These are all mountains. You know, these are bad mountains. You know that God has the ability to remove these mountains, but is it his will to remove them? We can't possibly see why he wouldn't remove them, but then again, we can't seem to be certain that he will. What if there's some small unknown reason why God is allowing this mountain to exist in my life? How do I know that I'm not supposed to be learning from this experience instead of commanding the mountain to be removed? What if he doesn't want to remove the mountain for something like that? But then again, what if he does want to move the mountain and he's just waiting on me to give some faith? Well, all of these confusing questions and contradictions, folks, this is where prayer and fasting comes in. Because that's how you get all of these questions settled and remove all the confusion. You can't have the faith even of a mustard seed without prayer and fasting. And don't let the word fasting scare you, folks. We're going to take a good close look at what prayer and fasting is really all about. We've defined everything else. We've defined what faith is. We've defined what he meant by the mustard seed. We defined what he meant by the mountain. We talked all about the removal of the mountain having to be agreeable to his will. We went there. So now let's look at what prayer and fasting is. Because that's the condition that Jesus gave us that ties this all together and activates it. This is how mountains get moved. Let's look at prayer first. Prayer is a channel that God himself has set up for us to build a personal relationship with him. Prayer is not a channel that God provided so that we can keep God informed. He knows everything already. He built the channel of prayer for us so that we can have a back and forth communication with him. And it doesn't matter what you're talking about. When you're praying, it's an act of worship. You are honoring God. Now, we might wonder if God knows everything already, then why does he want us to talk to him about our problems? It's because by doing that, you're honoring God as the problem solver. He knows that. When you bring your needs to him, your troubles, your pains, your mountains, God doesn't perceive that as whining. He receives it as an act of honor and worship because you're acknowledging to him that he is the source of your needs, that he is the source of your peace. God loves that. And even though he knows everything you need, he still wants you to bring it to him because that is when God chooses to speak to us concerning those problems so that we can get those needs met, get that peace that passes all understanding, get the supernatural power to move mountains. And when God speaks to us, he does it primarily in three ways. The first way is through his word, the Bible. You can't know God's will about anything if you're not in his word. When you take a problem or a burden to the Lord in prayer and get in the word, then either at that very moment or perhaps sometime later, God is going to remind you in your heart of something you brought to him in prayer. And suddenly the answer is going to be right there in your lap in black and white. The second way God speaks to us is through our circumstances. Now, be careful here. I'm not saying that everything that transpires in any given day is somehow a supernatural code for something that God is trying to tell you. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that after you've prayed to the Father about something, and after he's led you to some scripture, then what he's going to do is he'll begin to tap on your shoulder here and there, reminding you, of something that he shared with you through his word earlier, whenever it's convenient and necessary. Let me give you a personal example. And I've got a million stories like these. A lot of them are a lot of fun. One of these days, I'm just going to have to chronicle them. Lots of fun. But one particular morning, I had read the passage where Jesus said that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. That really impressed me, the idea that something 
as insignificant as that. I mean, we see it all the time, birds running into windows and stuff. According to what Jesus said, that doesn't happen without God the Father personally putting a check by it and saying, I authorize this, I approve this. Well, after I read that, that afternoon while I was praying outdoors, I was at my job, and uh, <laughs> it was a job I didn't like. So there was a lot of praying. Whenever I had a break, I was outside praying, trying to get out of it. But uh, that particular afternoon while I was praying, a sparrow flew into the window. It was stunned and then got up and flew away. And when I saw that, I remembered that it was just that morning that I read where Jesus said that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. So when it happened, I thought, Lord, I'm praying right now. And then this happens. That sparrow that just flew into the window and then flew away, you had to authorize that before it happened. And you knew I would be here to see that. So what are you trying to tell me? Well, didn't get anything out of that. But then about two or three hours later, I went to a restaurant. And as I was standing in the waiting area, it happened again. Another sparrow hit the window behind me, got dazed, and then got up and flew away. And I thought, okay, Lord, this is too much of a coincidence. That's twice now. You said to me this morning that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. So twice today, you've reminded me of reading that verse. Why? And then, folks, it wasn't two or three seconds after I asked why, that right then and there, someone walked into the restaurant waiting area that I had known and that person was a source of deep, spiritual, emotional trial in my past. This was someone I had no desire to see, someone I hadn't seen in many, many years because I had cut off ties with them, someone who normally would have sent me into an anxious panic just being in the same room with them. But not this time. Not this time, because God told me first that morning in his word that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the father's consent. And then God himself reminded me of that twice. While I just happened to be standing near a window at two different times at two different places. So that when this person walked into the restaurant, I immediately knew that this meeting was first authorized by God himself, which means it's okay. It wasn't random. God himself was allowing it to happen, and he spent the entire day assuring me of that before it even took place. God was in control. So when this other person and I made eye contact, instead of behaving like an immature, insecure little child, I behaved like a mature child of God. And I smiled with confidence, extended my hand, and guess what? We actually had lunch together. And I'm the one who invited him. Now, I have no idea what purpose was served from that meeting. But God was there the entire time and was doing something. He was doing something important either in that other person's life or maybe mine. I have no idea what it was, but it must have been important. It was also important for me because I learned how to rise above my circumstances and not let them control my feelings. My peace at that moment did not come from me or my abilities. I wasn't concerned about what to say or what not to say. The whole event 
was predestined by God himself. So I wasn't worried. And that came through. That was a mountain that God himself removed before I even knew it was going to be there. I cannot, <laughs> kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if I hadn't prayed that morning. And if I hadn't happened to be in the word to find that verse, God may have not sent those sparrows to hit the windows. And if they had hit the windows, even without me praying and read the word, I wouldn't have made the connection. So I wouldn't have been at peace when this person walked into the restaurant. So some mountains get removed before we even know about them through prayer. That's how God speaks with us through his word, through circumstances, and he speaks directly to our heart. Now we can pray short little prayers throughout the entire day, and we can pray long prayers in the morning or at night. Doesn't matter. Our prayer isn't to inform God or to tell God what he needs to do. Prayer is God's channel for us to have a two-way relationship with him so that he can get to us what we need. Wisdom, courage, information, being reminded of passages of scripture that are full of truth. So he can get to us everything we need in our heart and in our mind to face everything we're going to face in life. That's why prayer should be a daily moment by moment thing, because life is daily and moment by moment, right? Now, whether we pray or not, God is with us 24-7. He promised us that in Hebrews. But what good is God's continual presence if we don't know it's there, if we don't feel it? What good is his guidance and his protection if we don't know it's there for the taking? Prayer keeps that awareness alive and active. And God takes advantage of that awareness. He wants you to be aware of his presence. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says to acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he will direct your paths and make them plain. Some versions say make them straight. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, not just your Christian ways or your churchy ways or spiritual ways. It's not what it said. It says acknowledge him in all your ways. That means moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, about everything. There's no such thing as something that's so trivial that God doesn't care. So if you are continually in the habit of praying always, then his communication is always going to be seeping into your heart and into your mind. So you're going to know what his will is. That's what prayer gets you. On a moment-by-moment -moment basis, when you're continually in prayer with the Lord all day long, then when a mountain shows up blocking your path, you'll know what to do. And even when you don't, didn't Proverbs 3, 6 say that if you acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, he will direct your path? And make it plain. If it's God's will for that mountain to be removed, then you will know for certain that it will be removed. And if not, then he'll provide you with the direction that you need to get around it. You know, sometimes we sit and stare at a mountain and don't go anywhere because God wants us to take a right, and go somewhere else. We don't know that because we're not in prayer. We're just standing in front of the mountain screaming at God to move it. If we were in constant prayer, acknowledging all of our ways before him, then we'd know to take a right. Now, in the case of the disciples, if they had been continually praying and acknowledging the Lord in all of their ways, then this demon-possessed boy who showed up wouldn't have been an issue. Apparently, they weren't too sure of themselves when actually it was never about them to begin with. But then Jesus also used the word fasting. He said, this kind cannot go out but by prayer and fasting. So what's fasting? When we hear the word fast, we think it means to starve ourselves to the point of death to get God's attention. I've actually heard it taught that way. There's nothing in the Bible that says that that's what fasting is. 
You don't get God's attention by saying, hey, God, look at what I'm doing for you. I'm going without food and starving. Listen to me. I'm going to keep starving myself, God. It's been three days now. Listen to me, God. Say something. Well, that's absurd, folks. God's attention is available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The idea that you have to starve yourself to get God's attention is ridiculous. The problem isn't God's attention to begin with. The problem is our attention. We live our lives surrounded by distractions. We have friends and family. We have telephones that ring. We have cell phones that take them with us. We have TVs with 900 channels. And we have the Internet. Well, the people of Jesus' day didn't have all of those distractions. They didn't have any cell phones, TV, or Internet. The biggest distraction that they had back then was mealtime. And it was sort of a distraction because back then eating was a big deal. You had rituals and ceremonial washing. Then you had ceremonial bread breaking. You reclined at the table. It was a big deal. The point of fasting isn't about depriving yourself of something to get God's attention. Fasting is about removing something that distracts you from hearing what God has to say concerning something. Some mountains in our lives show up out of nowhere, and they are so huge and so intimidating that we suddenly can't think of anything else but that mountain. For example, let's say you just lost your job out of nowhere. You didn't see it coming. And tomorrow morning, the rent is due, and you don't even have half the money. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go home? And then get on your knees and pray to God about this problem for 15 minutes and then go cook and eat supper and then watch TV like nothing ever happened? No, the mountain is too huge for you to do that. It's a great concern. You're going to be on your knees in tears and in prayer, seeking his counsel, seeking his face, because you want to know what to do. And that's what fasting is all about, folks. You're removing all of the distractions because you have to. It's that important. People running around starving themselves, and they tell people, I'm fasting this week. Like, what, what's that accomplishing? What for? Another reason for fasting is to bring that mountain down to size. Because when that mountain shows up, it is so huge and intimidating, it becomes larger to us than God himself. Now, we know that's not true, but man, you don't know about my mountain. We pray, and we pray hard, but that mountain is still there. So we go about our lives trying to act like it's not there when it's still there. We try to watch TV like everything's okay, all while the shadow of that mountain continues to loom over everything. Then the phone rings. We get on the phone and we try to talk to somebody like there's no mountain, but it's right there, looming in front of you, a hundred miles high, towering in front of you. Then you get online to get on the internet, check your email. The mountain still dominates your attention. So what do you do? Well, God knows about it and I've prayed. Yeah, but that mountain's still bigger, isn't it? The mountain is so intimidating that you can't go on about your life as though everything's normal. You would if you could, but you can't. We spend a moderate amount of time with the Lord in prayer, but eventually we go about our lives. But this mountain just overshadows everything. So the only way to bring it down to size is to make God overshadow everything in your eyes until that mountain is brought down to size. And that's what fasting is all about, folks. It's not about depriving yourself of something to impress God. It's about removing every single thing that distracts you from the feeling of his presence and hearing from him. Because his presence and hearing from him is what you desperately need right now. 
You're so desperate for the feeling of God's presence, his divine intervention, his words of wisdom, that absolutely nothing else matters. So you turn everything else off. You take the phone off the hook. You unplug the TV and the internet. You close the blinds. You refuse to answer the door. It's just you and God and nothing else matters because that mountain is just too big. I can't ignore it any longer. Well, you have to go to work. Not today. This is too important. But what about your bills? I don't know. It doesn't matter. What about your meeting this afternoon? Well, I'm going to have to miss it. This is more important. What about the season finale of so-and-so tonight? Well, I'm going to have to miss it. This is more important. But what if the phone rings? It won't. I took it off the hook. But what if somebody needs to get you an emergency? Too bad. I'll just have to take that chance. This is too important. But what about this? But what about that? It doesn't matter. This is more important. Nothing else matters until I hear from him and know beyond a shadow of a doubt what to do. Now, can you accomplish that without depriving yourself of food? I think so. I don't think they could in Jesus' day because, like I said, eating was a big ceremonial ordeal. It was a distraction, and there weren't too many other distractions besides that. Today, we can zap stuff in the microwave and gulp it down in minutes. See, there's a lot of things in life that take up our attention. But when that mountain shows up and stands before us, the things that usually take up our attention suddenly don't. They become a distraction. So we temporarily remove those distractions to deal with the mountain and hear from the Lord. There's examples of this in the scripture. Paul talked about it being a good idea for a married couple to abstain from sex from time to time for the sake of fasting. So in their case, they weren't fasting food. They were fasting sex. Not because sex was bad or that depriving themselves of sex somehow impressed God did make him talk more, but because sometimes we desperately need God's advice. We need it so bad that all of a sudden, all of those other things just suddenly become noises to our ears. So we shut it all out. That's what biblical fasting is about, folks. It's about directing our attention to the Lord in prayer and reading his word and staying continually focused on him and his word, staying focused in prayer staying in his presence at the cost of everything else. That's what fasting is. That's why some people also call fasting getting in God's face. What they mean by that is that you've blocked everything else out. You've got tunnel vision. It's nothing but God. It's God, 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 until you know what to do. So when we have a mountain that's just before us, an immovable mountain, normally we can pray around it or pray over it or pray through it. But sometimes that mountain is so big and so intimidating that nothing short of the removal of that mountain will do. So by prayer and fasting, notice Jesus combines them. If you just turn off everything and don't pray, what good's that? I mean, if you turn off the TV, turn off the phone, close the door, but don't pray, I mean, what good is that? You're just sitting there staring at a wall. And people actually do that, folks, because they don't understand what fasting really is. They starve themselves to death, and they just go on living their lives, watching TV, getting online, and I wonder what they think they're accomplishing. But here's what usually happens after some seriously long extended periods of prayer and fasting. The more time you spend alone with the Lord in prayer and reading his word, the second day, then all day the third day, then all day the fourth day, and you keep reading, and you keep praying, and God keeps whispering and you keep focusing on him and his word and his promises. 
one of a few things is going to happen. Suddenly, that mountain in your eyes is going to start to become smaller and smaller and smaller in comparison to the creator of the universe that you've been spending days with. And then you see that mountain for what it really is. And then God begins to show you what to do, whether it's to endure it, climb over it, or remove it. And how? See, with the usual interpretation of this verse, folks, we, we sit down and we pray and we expect that mountain to be removed just like magic. And God can do that. And sometimes he will, depending on what's going on. But sometimes God wants to remove that mountain one piece at a time. And he wants you to see every piece of that mountain being removed. Because in cases like that, most likely, we're the ones who built the mountain to begin with. Now, some mountains don't have anything to do with you. or not about you at all. God's got to remove them independently of your actions. All that's required of you is to be patient and to have faith. He might do it quick, and he might do it in years. The point is, by the time your fasting is all over with, you finally see the mountain the way God sees it. And then following that, you'll know exactly what to do, and you'll be at peace. Now, let's look at some different examples of mountains and see how all this works. Let's take the first example given to us here in the scriptures. This boy is demonically possessed, and this demon has got his claws inches deep inside that boy. I mean, he ain't going nowhere. And demons are spiritual beings with hostile intent. They are especially hostile towards the children of God. And that's who these disciples are. But then this boy's father brings him to Jesus' disciples. Now, Jesus had already commissioned them to go out and heal people of demonic possession. And they did so with much success. They didn't have any problem with it. But this time, they were sitting at the base of the mountain while Jesus was alone with Peter, James, and John. This was an unexpected visit. Well, should we wait for Jesus? If Jesus was here, he'd do it. But he's up in the mountain right now, so I guess it's up to us. We can do it. We did it before, but I just wish Jesus was here to do it. But we can do it. You think? Yeah, let's try it. Well, obviously, they weren't sure of themselves and the power of Christ. Before, it was different because Jesus had sent them out and gave them a big speech before they left. So they marched on as soldiers for the kingdom, performing an important mission order by Jesus himself. Well, they completed their mission and came back. That's all over. But here they are, and they're caught off guard. Now, if they had been consistently praying, instead of goofing off, playing video games, or doing whatever it was that people did back then, that's equivalent to our goofing off, they would have been ready for this encounter. Their assurance of who they were in Christ would have given them all the faith they needed. That's why Jesus told them, it's because of your lack of faith that you couldn't drive out the demon. He didn't say their littleness of faith. They didn't have any faith at that moment. Their lack of faith. See, prayer increases faith. Focusing on God and on the things of God increases faith. Reading his word increases faith. Prayer increases faith. All that works together. And whether we know it or not, folks, we don't mean for it to work out like this, but whether we know it or not, everything else drains our faith. Now, when it comes to demonic possession or demons in general or supernatural activity that shows up in your apartment at two o'clock in the morning for whatever reason, if you're in constant prayer and if you've been focused on God and the word, you can knock that out in a single command. That's a mountain that can be removed instantly. I don't care what it is. I don't care what they're doing. But there's other kinds of mountains that aren't removed as quickly. 
What about addictions? Nicotine addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, whatever, porn addiction, whatever it is. Those are mountains, folks, that are going to take some time to be removed because, first of all, we're the ones who built the mountain to begin with, and we didn't do it in a single step. Now, God could remove the mountain instantly, but we wouldn't learn anything. So the point is to take that apart and get rid of it a piece at a time. Now, do you remember earlier in the story, when we were early in the session, when Jesus commanded the demon to come out of that boy, the demon had to obey him. But do you remember the fit that he threw before he left? Whenever there is going to be an addiction involved, we're so used to the world talking to us about how addiction works. We hear about the chemicals that make the brain dependent. Porn even has its own chemical impact. But the fact of the matter is, folks, even though there are physical sides to this, there are demons behind the scenes that are causing the addiction, that get the addiction started, that give the addiction its power. Now, there is a physical side to it, and you have to work through that. But Ephesians chapter 6 told us we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. But against the spirits, against the powers, against the despotisms of the world rulers of this present darkness, folks. And that's what the armor of God gets into. So from the demonic side of this, whenever it comes to addictions, when you start fighting those addictions, expect Satan to try to stop you from trying. Because the first time I tried to seriously quit smoking, it's ironic that that day, everything that could have happened, happened. People showed up that I didn't expect to show up. People aggravated me in ways that normally wouldn't have aggravated me. All the circumstances worked together to make sure that I wouldn't quit smoking that day. And then I said the prayer about removing the mountain, this passage right here. I was thinking, okay, God said I can do it. If I have just the faith of a mustard seed, I can command this mountain to move from here to there. And I prayed the prayer. And for three hours, I was focused on being a non-smoker. As far as I was concerned, I was a non-smoker now because Jesus said I could do it. And that's all there was to it. Three hours later, I went in the living room, turned on the Roku, see what was on TV. 30 minutes later, I wanted a cigarette. Now, am I saying that the Roku made me want to smoke a cigarette? No. What I'm saying is, is that what Jesus said about prayer and fasting, it kind of makes me wonder. If I had shut out the world and stayed on my knees, I wonder how long I would have gone without a cigarette, and it not bothered me. Because for those first three hours, it didn't matter. I was a non-smoker. I had no desire for a cigarette. But what about an employer? Let's say you've got a boss that you just can't work for. That's a mountain, right? Well, you prayed about it. God wants you to keep the job okay, so you keep the job. But what about this employer? Well, there's multiple things God can do to remove that mountain. One of the things he can do is remove your employer. And I've seen that happen. It happened to me once just blew me away. Suddenly, that employer was no longer a problem. They got transferred. Other times, it might be a matter of God teaching you some humility and some patience. And God has used employers to teach me some humility and some patience and some forbearance. So some of these mountains God allows to stay there because he wants to teach you something. But if he wants to remove them, he will, and it'll blow you away.
What about a disease or a disorder of some kind? God has the power to heal. And when you pray and fast, God chooses to heal people instantly. And it's a miracle. And people see it. And everybody knows God did it. But sometimes God chooses a longer route. That's still healing. It's just not as miraculous, not as impressive. And sometimes when God chooses those routes, it's once again to teach us patience, to teach us humility, and to keep us relying on him, to keep us patient and trusting him. Because that trust is going to be necessary for other occasions. Sometimes God knows that there's something coming up, say, five years from now, that our total reliance upon him is going to be vital to our survival. And we don't know how to trust him. So then God will start putting little mountains along the path. So you'll learn to trust him so that when a big mountain comes, you'll be a pro.